0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org. Welcome to First Evangelical Free Church in Maplewood, Minnesota. If you have questions or comments after hearing this week's message online, feel free to write us on our blog or on our Facebook page. We'd be happy to respond and connect with you. And now let's hear from God's Word.
1: Such a delight to be with you. Bible's open to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Read along with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, I always feel a little apprehension when I hear a speaker for the first time. I'm wondering, how serious is he about the Bible? How surrendered is he to the message? Does he savor our Savior, and will he help me savor him more? Now those kinds of questions I believe are the what Paul expected his readers to be asking when he sent his letter to Rome. Because neither Paul nor any of his co-workers had planted this church. And so what he does up here at the front side of the letter is lay out his authority as an apostle and then unpacks in a, in a very small way the message that will dominate all the rest of the book. All the rest of the book is going to be unpacking the truth and the power of what he says here in the first six verses. So because I want you to trust me, and even more, because I want you to magnify the majesty of the Christ that Paul proclaims, I thought this was a good passage to focus our attention on today. So to that end... Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have intruded into space and time in the person of your Son, who is now exalted on high, bearing the name that is above every name. We want to meet him today. We want to encounter him, and I pray for life and help and hope to intrude into this room, that people would encounter the life-giving gospel, good news concerning Jesus. For the praise of his name, I pray. Amen. Romans is a missionary support letter. And so right here at the beginning, he opens by highlighting two things. The mission's messenger and then the makeup of his mission. So if you're taking notes, those are the two parts of my outline. The mission's messenger and then the makeup of his mission. We begin in verse 1. The messenger of the mission. The book opens abruptly. It just says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If you and I were writing the letter, then we would have said, the letter from Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7 it says, it's to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. Now in verse 1, we hear three things about the messenger. We hear defined his role his office, and his task. Look with me at the text. As to his role, Paul says he is a servant of Christ Jesus. So right from the start, Paul takes the attention off of himself and puts it on his authority. Christ Jesus is the one that he serves, and there the focus lies. Now, Christ is not Jesus' name. Christ is a title. It means the Anointed One. And Christos is the word that is used all throughout the Greek Old Testament to render the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. Messiah. Now the word order here in verse 1 is a servant of Christ Jesus. Not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the normal way we see it. So the fact that Paul puts Christ, Messiah, up front suggests that he's wanting right up from the start for us to see him as an ambassador of the longed-for Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, who was expected to to make all wrongs right, to conquer sin, to curb God's wrath, and to be the one through whom blessing would be secured for all the world. That is the one Paul serves. Now, the language of servant likely points even further. Because way back in Isaiah, Isaiah said that after the substitutionary work, the atoning work of the, subs, of the suffering servant, servants, plural, would be commissioned out from the Jews and from the Gentiles to carry the Messiah's mission to the ends of the earth. To proclaim the good news that he had secured in his death and resurrection. So I think when Paul calls himself a servant of Messiah Jesus, that he's actually wanting his readers to be thinking about Paul as one of those ambassadors that was promised way back in Isaiah who would spring forth from the victorious, sin-overcoming, righteousness-bringing work of the Messiah. He was a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, not only that, we then read that he was, look at verse 1, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Here Paul tells us his office and his task. Look with me at the text. He was an apostle. One, who, one of those who had distinct authority in the first century as a messenger of the good news, that when Paul spoke, he was speaking the very words of God. Apostle at base means one who is sent. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, appeared to Paul and commissioned him to be a messenger of good news to the Gentiles. And now this letter is part of Paul's fulfillment of fulfilling his commission. He's writing the Roman church, predominantly a Gentile church, fulfilling his role as apostle. And his task is defined. He is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. His role as servant, his office as apostle, his task relates to the gospel. And at this point, Paul switches from his focus on the messenger to addressing the makeup of the message. Look with me right at the end of verse 1. His task is related to the gospel of God. This unit... From 1c down to verse 6 is itself broken into two parts. The makeup of the mission addresses both the nature or the the message itself, the gospel, and then he clarifies what his aim is in his mission. So you have the message of the mission and then you get the nature of the mission. And the nature of the mission is what is going to focus on the majesty of Jesus. Seeing people cherish, magnify the majesty of Christ. So we begin at the very end of 1C. The message of the mission. It's the gospel. The Lord commissioned Paul to a ministry focused on the gospel of God. Gospel of God. This could mean the gospel that finds its source in God, that comes from God, or Paul could be saying that the good news is about God. Both of them are true. The gospel, good news, is given by God, and it's all about God. Now, I already noted how in verse 1, Paul, in calling himself a servant, seems to be drawing on Isaiah. Identifying himself as one of those many servants that were to spring forth from the suffering servants' ministry. I think this mention of gospel most likely also finds its source in Isaiah's message because it's way back there in Isaiah that we first see this term, good news, gospel associated with God's end times reign through his Messiah. So I'm going to go back there to Isaiah and if you want to go with me we're going to look at three passages briefly. I'm going to start in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 verse 9, Isaiah says, get up to a high mountain O herald of good news, there it is, lift up your voice with strength O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And then verse 11, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. If you feel weak, no mighty, no power, there's good news. Isaiah says, God has come with might. If you feel lost, insecure, Isaiah says, good news, we have a shepherd, and a shepherd's role is to provide and to protect. Good news, God reigns. Now, if you were to ask Isaiah, in what way does God come in power? In what way on earth does he show up as a shepherd? He would say, he shows up and he reigns through his earthly king, the servant Turn with me now to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, that's just one chapter before Isaiah unpacks the glorious doctrine found in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is focused on the suffering servant who was bruised for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace fell on him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 52, as anticipation of that great substitutionary atoning event, this is what we read in Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful are the, on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who declares gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, "Your God reigns"? Paul cites this passage in Romans ten fifteen, suggesting that this reign of God, good news, bringing peace and happiness and salvation, is actually operating right now among us, and that as Jesus has come, now the church gets commissioned and what we're doing is proclaiming good news of peace. That's how Paul is reading this text. That through Jesus' victorious work on the cross, God has made a way for you and me to know peace, to know happiness, to know salvation. This is good news. That I could be saved From my proneness to wander, from my battle from impurity, yes, there is salvation for you. That I could have all that anxiety in my life overcome with peace, yes, there's good news. God reigns, he's bigger than that. It's good news that needs to be proclaimed. Good news about a sovereign, our God reigns and because he is sovereign over all, then he is the one alone who can save and who can satisfy. Apart from him, there is no good news. No hope apart from God. No hope. But in Jesus, and only Jesus, there is lasting salvation, there is lasting satisfaction for everyone who believes, who surrender to him as King. Now, Jesus quotes the third gospel text in Luke 4. It's found in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. So when Jesus starts out his ministry in Luke 4, 18 and 19, he sits down in the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads this scroll Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to what end? To bring good news. And Jesus says, that's what I'm about. Good news of the end times reign of God. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That we can actually, as once enemies of God, now know the favor of God. That's what Jesus came to proclaim. Later, Jesus says in Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. I have to do it. Not only here, but in the other times as well, other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus looked at his ministry as all about the gospel of the kingdom. He was all about the reign of God. From his birth all the way up to his ascension, he was proclaiming good news. Kingdom good news of God's reign through his Messiah. Now back in Romans. So Paul sees himself as a good news preacher. He's a servant of Messiah Jesus set apart to carry on the messianic mission that Isaiah foretold. The gospel finds its source and its content in God. A God who reigns. The gospel of God gives hope for the broken. For God reigns over sickness and over suffering. When he says cancer be gone, he can do it. Or, amazingly, he can provide us all the grace we need to persevere through it all the way to glory. Because he reigns. The gospel of God gives relief to those who lack, who lack job, who lack parent, who lack love, lover. How does the gospel work? Because in Jesus, every promise becomes yes, including my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The gospel of God. The good news of God's reign gives help to those who are struggling with sin. Why? Because God reigns and that means that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. This is good news when we're battling despondency, when we're battling for purity, when we're battling brokenness, our God reigns. The good news, we're told in verse 2, look there, was promised beforehand through His holy prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel we celebrate today is not new. It was already being proclaimed, promised, way back in the Old Testament. Before Jesus and Paul ever preached the gospel, the prophets of old were promising it. Paul's holy scriptures were the Old Testament. Because he right now is writing the New Testament. It's not yet around. So when he's talking about the holy scriptures, what he's preaching from is the first three-fourths of our Bible. That's his Bible. That's all he's got. And then he's got Jesus. And he's preaching it, and he's preaching it, and he's saying, there's something back there about Jesus. Good news. Good news. Moses already started preaching it in Genesis. Listen, Galatians three eight. Paul declares that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." Similarly, in Hebrews chapter four, verse two, the writer contrasts Christians. Today, with the Exodus generation that failed to enter because of their lack of faith and obedience. Here's what he says. Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Good news in the past, good news in the present. Far too many Christians Think that the Old Testament, because it's old, doesn't relate to us. It doesn't connect to the church. True, we are not under the authority of the Old Covenant. But the Old Testament is Christian scripture that is loaded with magnifying our Messiah. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, promising, pointing to Jesus. Jesus himself came, he says, not to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, Matthew 5.17. And now because of him, because Jesus has come, Paul can say in Romans 15.4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Jesus said, if you believed Moses, then you'd believe me because he wrote about me. John 5, 46. And then in Luke 24, 26, the resurrected Jesus asked the two men on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize it was him yet, and he said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke adds in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look with me back at verse 3. The gospel which was promised beforehand through the prophets is concerning His Son. Now when Paul says there it was promised beforehand I just see a little redundancy. Why didn't he just say it was promised? Promises always precede fulfillment but he uses this double language and I think he's drawing attention to something. He's wanting to stress that there is a foundation and there is fulfillment. There's anticipation that gives rise to realization. And he's adding emphasis that we're living in the day of realization when good news is not just hoped for. Good news is realized. It was promised beforehand but now in Jesus has come so if you find yourself today being one who has been longing, living long in darkness and longing a long time for light good news in Jesus the light has come Paul unpacks the basis of this kind of hope in verses 3 and 4 so look with me there he says that the Gospel concerns His Son. That is, the Son of God. When they were preaching, pr- pr- uh, predicting the good news in the Old Testament, it was already concerning the Son. A Son that was already alive. The preexistent Son. That's what they were proclaiming. They were identifying with the eternal mission of the pre- of the. Son in glory for eternity before he became a man. The Son was always part of the Trinity. And the good news that the prophets promised related to his eternal mission of magnifying his worth and the worth of his Father by redeeming redeeming a people who would cherish God. Though he was in the form of God, Paul says in Philippians 2, he was already in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul also speaks of this move of the Son from heaven to earth in Romans 8, verse 3, when he says, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, by sending Him in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh. So at the heart of the Gospel is God's Son, who we next read in verses 3 and 4, entered our world as the offspring of King David and then was installed as the hoped-for sovereign over all. Look again at verses 3 and 4. It says, God's Son was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. In Paul's letters, flesh and spirit are always contrasted. The flesh being part of the old creation, the spirit part of the new. So what this suggests to me as I look at verses 3 and 4 is that in some way we have being contrast Jesus' earthly existence as the longed-for Messiah and the exalted status as king in power that he receives after his resurrection. Let's look at it a little more clearly. So Jesus' descent from David reemphasizes that Old Testament connection. What Jesus is about is grounded in the first part of the Bible. And then it also emphasizes His humanness. It was necessary that He would be absolutely, fully human. In Genesis 3.15, right after the fall into sin and death, we first hear the promise that a male offspring, a male man, I've said that before, a male offspring of the woman, was the one who would rise and deliver all of humanity. That's Genesis 3.15. That the serpent and all of his God of hostility would be put down by a male deliverer. By the end of Genesis, what we've learned is that male offspring of the woman would actually come through the line of Abraham and that he would be a king in the line of Judah. So an offspring of the woman in the line of Abraham a king in the line of Judah, but it's not until 2 Samuel 7 that all of a sudden, all of those hopes get focused in on the line of David of the line of Judah. It focuses in on David in 2 Samuel 7 as God makes amazing promises to this man. Here's what we learn about the promise of God's future royal son. 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 16, here's what it says, I will be a father to him. This is God talking. I'll be a father to your future son, and he shall be to me a son. He'll be the very son of God. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now for David's throne to be established forever necessitates one of two things. Either there's going to be an ever-unending cycle of Davidic kings Forever, or, there's going to be one king that would rise whose throne would last forever. And as you look at the prophets, it's very clear that what they were anticipating was a single Davidic king. And then as we look at the New Testament writings, they just stress that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all those Davidic hopes. Davidic sonship was necessary for the Messianic Mission: The Messiah had to be in the line of David, and Paul is highlighting it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled, but he's also stressing a key fact that we find throughout the rest of the book, and that is that the Messiah came from the Jews. Romans nine five: that the gospel is for the Jew first. Romans 1.16. that the promises made to the Jewish people are right now being fulfilled. Paul's saying in chapters nine through eleven. And that the Gentiles should remember that the Jewish they should remember the Jewish root of the olive tree, Romans eleven, fifteen through eighteen. Indeed, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah from the root of Jesse, who Paul later says in chapter fifteen, twelve, rises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. That's me and probably most of you. So verse 3 details Jesus' earthly identity, but then in verse 4, we see the switch. Now we see an emphasis on the exalted status of Jesus post-resurrection. Look with me there. The very one who, according to the flesh, descended from David was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. This word that's rendered declared I think should be understood in the sense of he was appointed the Son of God in power. He was established as the Son of God in power. At the resurrection, the Father appoints the Son to a new status of power. He moves from being simply a hoped-for king to actually being recognized, established as the king. This doesn't mean that Jesus was only recognized to be God's Son at his resurrection. It also doesn't mean that now he becomes the Son of God at his resurrection. No, all the way already back in verse 3, I said that when the promises were made, he was already the Son. No, instead, what I think is going on here is that at the resurrection, Jesus' status shifts so that he becomes now the reigning king. It's only in Matthew 28, after Jesus has risen from the dead, that Jesus is now able to stand and say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Only then does he receive the status of king of the universe. He's proven that he's defeated the devil. And now he has established himself as the reigning Lord. It's what the psalmist talks about in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 he predicts prophetically, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, as Peter says at Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Philippians chapter 2, it's after noting that Jesus was found in human form and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. It's after that, that then we read, therefore God has highly exalted him, giving him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So in Jesus... The age characterized by flesh gets overcome by the age characterized by the Spirit. The resurrection sparks new creation. Heaven coming to earth. And the kingdom reign starts. So that Jesus as Messiah is now called, look at verse 4, now we can call Him our Lord Prior to his resurrection, Jesus was still the hoped-for Messiah. He was the Son of God. But his death and resurrection inaugurated a new stage in his messianic existence, for he now reigns as the one who canceled the record of debt that stood against us before God. He's the one who disarmed all rulers and authorities that held sway over our souls. He is king, and that is good news. In the words of Paul, in Ephesians 1.22, God has now put all things, car accidents, broken relationships, loss of job, every watermelon, every moose, every prime minister and president. God has now put all things under Jesus' feet. And given him as head over all things. If he's that big, what it means is that there is no problem too big, no distance too far, no obstacle too difficult, no pain too great, no sin so pervasive that Jesus can't enter in and help you and help me. That's good news. It is the power of God. That's what the gospel is. Notice the connection between verse 4 where it says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power and verse 16 that is so familiar, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul can say, by grace we have been saved Have been saved, past tense, through faith. Ephesians 2.8 But he can also say the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Paul in his mind has a context where salvation can be past tense, but we also need right now to be saved from burden, saved from guilt, saved from pressure and the pursuit of worldly pleasures. We need to be saved from that. And Paul says the gospel matters for that. I mean, he's eager to preach the gospel to the the church in Rome. He's not trying to get them converted. He believes that the gospel needs to be heard by Christians because of the power of God to presently saving us. But not only that, Romans 5.9, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved? from the wrath of God. The gospel is the power of God for past salvation, present salvation, and future salvation. It all hinges on this good news. May we embrace it. Saved from our sinfulness, saved from the curse, saved from the certainty of God's just wrath against sinners, the gospel is the power of God because in it, the Son of God in power is manifest. Verses 5 and 6. The nature of the mission, magnifying Christ. Jesus has all authority in the universe. So the question at hand is, will you trust that he is able to help you? Will you follow him, believing that his way is best? Those questions of faith and obedience lead us into verses 5 and 6. Look with me there. Paul says in verse 5, Through this resurrected Son of God in power, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. So Paul was a herald of good news. And the initial aim of his mission was to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience is about following a leader. It's about being near someone that we are surrendered to they're the guide we are the follower and in this instance the leader is the son of God in power obedience is the fruit of faith the obedience of faith the way I'm understanding that is it's the obedience that flows from faith why because there's no reason to obey Jesus if we don't believe first that he is trustworthy and if we don't believe that his promises are desirable, but if all of a sudden we believe that he's worth following and that he's faithful to fulfill his promises, all of a sudden that faith overflows in obedience. We'll want to be with him. We'll want to be near him because we believe that what he has declared to be true, that he reigns over all and that he's worth pursuing, that we believe it's real. It's the obedience of faith. The gospel is supposed to spark obedience of faith in people. Notice that Paul says there in verse 5, he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. I just want you to hear this, love. He received apostleship in order to bring about the obedience of faith. That is, who. Did he receive it from? God the Father, through Jesus, commissions Paul to his mission. So hear that. God the Father, who we were once enemies with, sends a man in order to call people, to to declare good news, in order that people might become followers of God, not enemies, but near him, not separated, but close. That right there, he's saying, do, do you hear the love, that we've got a God who's reaching down into space and time, while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. This is good news. That we could find our hearts satisfied, that we could find our sins overcome. All because God, because God intruded into our world through Jesus with good news. Now Paul says that this good news that's supposed to bring about obedience of faith, notice what he says there, it's supposed to be the obedience of faith among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's not only hope for Jews, there's hope for Gentiles because the Jewish Messiah has finally come. As God promised to Abraham, in you shall, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then Paul says in Galatians 3.14, in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever among you believes life. But if you don't believe, the wrath of God remains on you. John 3:36. Regardless of one's color, ethnic background, or heritage, good news. There's good news. Now notice in verse 5, we come to why did I name the sermon what I did? For the sake of His name, a mission to magnify the majesty of Christ. It comes right here. There is a more ultimate aim than making followers. Look what it says. Through Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Through Jesus, for the sake of... Of his name. Missions exist in order to create worship. And that is right. Paul says in Philippians 2 9, as Jesus obeyed even to the point of death on the cross, at that God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, He is Lord. He is Lord. Good news. Paul in Romans 11.36 it says, from God are all things, through God are all things, for God, everything. Colossians 1.16, by the Son, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, but also the invisible things created by Jesus. And then it says, they were created by him and through him, and they were created for him. We proclaim for the sake of the name. Worship is the ultimate end of the gospel. The promise of the gospel reaches all the way back into Genesis. God's kingdom building plan is moving, is moving, is moving to the point where Jesus is exalted over all and he is given all the praise. And this is right. Why is it right? Because Jesus is indeed king, worthy of highest praise. But it's also necessary. It is necessary that everything in this world climax in for the sake of His name. Why is it necessary? Because if here is King Jesus over all things and He allows now any other glory to be, if if something else is higher than Him, if He says it's not for my name, it's for something else, what happens to the King? What happens to God? He's no longer God. Something else has gone higher than him. I can't live for the sake of my name. But he must live for the sake of his name because he's God over all things. And if he stops being God, we stop existing because we are fully dependent on him. Everything exists for the sake of his name. From him, through him, to him. To him be the glory. The Bible, beginning with Genesis, begins to proclaim good news. Proclaiming a gospel concerning Jesus which is designed to help us enjoy a relationship with this God for the glory of His name. So I ask you, will you celebrate with me the Son of God in power, who alone is our help, who alone is our hope, who alone is our joy. Believe that he is sovereign and therefore able to meet your need, able to sustain you through pain and suffering, able to save you from the sin in which you are so naturally entangled in. Believe that he is God and then follow him. Follow him close, not turning to the right hand or to the left, but keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. And then as you follow, let it overflow in praise. Let it it just rise up to praise. Thanks be to God that such a relationship, such a life is possible. Thank God for the hope that flows from the power of Christ that in turn gives power to us. Power to overcome power to save let's pray father I ask that you would help all of us as needy needy people needy for salvation needy for joy needy for help and you the son of God empower over all things calling us to yourself. What love. Help us live for the sake of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening
0: to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant For his glory in Christ.